Hi everybody, Mike Wardrock from Encounter Church here, and thanks so much for tuning into our podcast. Our prayer is that through this podcast, you could have an encounter with Jesus that will change your life. And now get ready for an inspiring message from our teaching team. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. There is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. Now, our number one goal as a church here in Counter is to develop resilient disciples. Amen? That's, that's why we're, we're so caught up in week after week going, sign up for resilient disciples. Please sign up. Tonight is actually the last night. If you message me tomorrow, I'm going to be on my Sabbath. I'm not going to answer, and you're not getting in. So message us today if you want to get in. Register for Resilient Disciples. It's going to be good. Our goal in doing that is not to sign you up to a course. Our goal is to form disciples who are mature and deep and last the test of time. That's the idea. That's what we want to be about. That's what we're selling the farm for. And one different definition of resilience is that resilient objects can handle shock. Right? So Tupperware is an example. It's designed that if you drop it, it still remains pretty strong. You're probably not going to break Tupperware. Was that funny? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. People are like, <laughs> Tupperware. We're just anticipating a heavy sermon. You'll take what you can get. I'm, I'm, All right. But, but human beings are not designed to be resilient. They are designed, as the author Nassim Nicholas Taleb says, to be anti-fragile. Anti-fragile. Listen to his definition. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. And that's really closer to how we describe resilience here at Encounter anyway, which is overcoming trouble with joy. That is, on the other side of trouble or adversity or suffering, we don't just survive, we thrive, we flourish. We know that we're going to go through some stuff. Now, the psychologists and authors, Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff, in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, which is chef's kiss good, like get a copy of that, suggest that this is important because our current cultural moment is one of safetyism. And that safetyism causes us to believe three big untruths. And here are the three big untruths. Number one, the untruth of fragility. What doesn't kill you makes you weaker. Number two, the untruth of emotional reasoning. Always trust your feelings. Number three, the untruth of us versus them. Life is a battle between good people and evil people. Hmm. One, one or more of them might have hit home. My favorite one's the second one because it's the one that when we hear it, we all go, ah, yes. But when we're doing it, we don't feel the same way. These untruths are actively making you more fragile and less happy. Read the book to find out. They are also directly against the teachings of Jesus. Now, they may seem right emotionally. We may feel some of them. But as Proverbs 14 says, it leads to death. Now, a couple of years earlier, Jesus had said to his disciples, a couple of thousand years earlier, in this world you will have trouble. I send you out like sheep among wolves. God prunes every branch that produces fruit. Okay, so he knew 
He knew life would be difficult. But here's the kicker. So that it will produce more fruit. That's the thing. Jesus didn't just go, hey, life sucks, huh? All right, then. (laughs) He's like, no, no, there is purpose to suffering. You grow on the other side of suffering. Now, this is not intended to be all about suffering, but that's, that's part of what happens to us. Jesus was onto this, would you believe, before the psychologists were. Crazy. Humans are designed to be anti-fragile. We are designed to confront and overcome difficulties and actually emerge stronger on the other side. We actually require stress and challenge in order to grow. Now, think about like going to the gym or going for a run, right? It hurts as you do it, but you grow, you strengthen. That's the point. Uh, There are exceptions to this rule. The exceptions are usually pretty much only around childhood trauma, and like really deep childhood trauma. I'm sure you can guess the kinds. But generally speaking, whatever else we go through, especially as an adult, we are able to come through stronger on the other side. Again, read the book if you want to know more, either Coddling the American Mind or better yet, this book. Now, there's one key difference for us as Christians. We are not just made to grow, right? If you've ever seen a tree, let's say any plant in my garden, if they're growing, they're just growing anywhere, like haphazardly all around the place because we are not caring for them in such a way in that we make them grow in the right way. We wouldn't know how to do that. But as Christians, we don't do that. We're not growing in a random direction and hoping for the best, are we? We are trying and striving to be conformed to an image because we've seen what it looks like when God becomes human. We've actually seen what the infinite looks like in finite form. So our goal is to become more like Jesus, God made flesh. We believe that when we do that, we see the kingdom of God to begin to break in. And if that seems too sort of hypothetical, what we mean is that we essentially feel like heaven on earth. When we begin to become more like Jesus, earth becomes more like heaven. Yeah, anyway, I'm not going to get too far down that path. Jesus said this, if anyone wants to follow after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. So to become like Jesus comes at a cost, church. But the benefit is that we genuinely change ourselves and the world around us for the better. To become more like Jesus is to become truly human. Welcome to the meaning of life. I'm only just getting started. Now, what you're going to get from me today is a two-part sermon. Uh, These will probably be slightly, well, maybe not in my case, because I usually preach a pretty long game anyway. But for the most part, these sermons, I think, will be a bit longer than usual because we have a lot of ground to cover. What you're going to get is two short ones for me today. One that is about effectively what are we talking about in general, and the second one, which is on artificial intelligence, partly because, as I mentioned to Josh before the sermon, I began to dive into the pool of artificial intelligence and its relationship to Christianity this week, and I immediately swam back to the edge of the pool and got out in terror, just terror, realizing I couldn't swim that deep in that short of time. So I'm like, okay, let's look over the pool, otherwise we need a whole series on artificial intelligence. But back to the meaning of life. This is why I believe this series and idea is so important. I believe that the biggest question of the 21st century for any human being is this. What does it mean to be human? What does that actually mean? Every generation has faced different questions, especially in the church, where we do live a little bit in the philosophical area and then try and work out how to live that out practically. But this is the biggest one for us today. We're facing a series of cultural crises 
that challenge the nature of our humanity and our understanding of being human. And so the aim of this series then is to look at some of these biggest issues that face us today in our understanding of what it means to be human. And then the natural follow-up question, well, then how should I live? If, if, if this is what it means, how do I live? Okay, that's a natural follow-up. There will be some difficult topics to handle, but you guys are resilient disciples. You're on the path to anti-fragility and being like Jesus. You are equipped to handle difficult cultural and theological conversations. Amen? Amen. You won't necessarily like where we take some of these conversations, but you don't actually need trigger warnings. Okay? I say that I'm glad no one laughed because I wasn't joking. This is your trigger warning for the series. Okay? You're actually okay. These conversations will grow you into being resilient disciples. And I say that about trigger warnings, not as a joke, but because, again, psychological research has shown that trigger warnings are basically unhelpful for people and make us more fragile. So no more trigger warnings. That's it. However, because these are very complex and uncomfortable ideas, not controversial, I want to avoid that word from now on, Because the aim is not to look at controversial ideas. The aim is to look at ideas that challenge our understanding of what it means to be human in the 21st century. Some of those are controversial. Some of them are not. Okay? That's that's why. If you're wondering, why didn't he speak on this? That's why. Because some things need to be spoken about in this framework and others don't. Here is the framework for the series that we'll be using most weeks to help us. Okay? This is what it looks like. Ideology, theology, pastoral response. Okay, ideology, theology, pastoral response. The more complex and frightening the topic that we're talking about, the more closely I'll probably stick to the framework. So the first part, ideology. What does that mean? What are our culture's dominant narratives and ideals around this topic? Like, what does our culture believe? Then what is my personal opinion? And then are these narratives and opinions actually true? So let's, let's start on a pretty easy way to look at this. Okay, AFL teams. Let's, if we look at the dominant narrative around the best AFL teams here in South Australia, the dominant narrative is Crows followed closely by Port and then the rest. I'm not, I'm not telling you what is true. I'm telling you the dominant narrative. You get, sorry, Power fans, it is true. I don't, now, if we go to my personal opinion... My personal opinion is that North Melbourne are the best AFL team. (laughs) However, however, really difficult to prove statistically. Like, just just unbelievably, painfully difficult to prove statistically. It doesn't really matter whether that's what I believe. Uh, That's just my personal opinion. You know what I mean? It doesn't matter in that case that it's not true. What matters for this is that you know what you think as you approach the topic. So, okay, okay. as I approach AFL and the best teams, I believe North Melbourne's the best team. So then as we get to facts, we come to the uncomfortable conclusion that Collingwood is currently the best AFL team. Gross, right? Yeah, if you're going to be triggered, it was going to happen there. (laughs) So that's ideology. Do, Do you get... What I'm saying there about the cultural narratives here in South Australia, then our personal opinions we bring, and then like if you look at the hard data, what the truth is at the moment. Okay, that's ideology. Then we get to theology. And theology really centers around this idea. What does God say about this topic in the Bible? What does God say about this topic in the Bible? Not what do I want him to say? What does he actually say? Because you don't want a God that looks like you. You want you to look like God. 
That, that's the aim. If God looks like you, we're all in trouble. But if you look like God, we're, we're doing well. So given that we believe that God's will and wisdom is the best plan for life, what does that then mean for how we live those lives in order to become more like Jesus, to conform to the image of Christ? And then what does this mean for our responsibility to the world? So for example, if God says in the Bible that women were made in the image of God, which it does, and that in relationships, husbands are designed to love their wives through sacrificial service, which it does, then we cannot believe that violence against women in relationships is okay, right? Now, that's a thought. That's a philosophical framework. But not only can we not believe it abstractly, we cannot participate in it because that's living that out. That's living out your theology. And then I would argue there's another step, which means we must then actively participate to end that framework in the world at all. So that's stepping out of my, it, it begins with, yes, I believe that's true. Then it moves to, I will never do that. And then it moves to, and I will participate in making sure that does not happen in the whole world. Now, I gave that example because I genuinely believe it to be true and biblical. But I also give it an example to go, there will be some places where particularly for us in modern culture, we're happy to go, I believe this. We're happy to say, I won't do it personally. But as soon as it steps into, and now in order to transform the world to be in God's image, I'll participate in that, we start getting a little more frightened. But you can see the difference, right? It's very important. The first, what does the Bible say? Really important. The second, what does that mean for me? Oh, super important. The third, what does that mean for the world? Ideology is about our feelings. Theology is about our beliefs and our minds. And this third part is about doing, about action, and is the pastoral response section. Given God's word and our culture's ideology, how big is the gap between our ideology and our theology? And how do we pastorally care for people who are in that gap? Either because they're struggling with God's word or because they're caught up in a construct of the ideology, like maybe they're, they're in a, struck in addiction, stuck in addiction. Um, or, or they just theologically are just so finding it so difficult to wrestle with that topic because pastoral care has nothing to do with agreeing with someone or making them agree with you and everything with loving them through their difficulty. So no matter what your ideological idea is or no matter even what God says in his word, one of the most significant things we see from God's Word is love your neighbor as yourself. The reason theology comes above pastoral response is it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But next is love your neighbor as yourself. So if you cannot love people, you are not living out the words of Scripture anyway. And that is so important because the way we love people is understood through God's Word and is pushed through God's Word constantly. Let me give you an example. If someone came up to me and said, oh, Mike, sex. I heard about it for the first time. Then I experienced it. It's really good. I was like, yep, married man, can confirm. And they're like, yep, great. So I'm just going to sleep around. I've been sleeping around for ages. I go, oh, that's a terrible idea. Now, I have a number of options here. I could say, I could just affirm, which is easy. Okay, oh, you do you. Knowing actually that that pattern of behavior leads to trails of pain for the individual and for people around them. Or I can come at them hard and go, how dare you? Let me judge you. Let me tell you why this is wrong. Or I can love them as a human being, disagree with them, listen to what they're saying, show them if they're a believer, 
show them the word and what the word says about this and how sex is designed within the covenant of marriage. And then if they disagree with me and go, well, I'm going to keep living my life, it's like, well, you can do that. I'm not going to stop you. You have free will. However, I'm also not going to affirm you because I believe that this is truly wrong. And one of the great challenges in modern culture is to love someone without affirming their behavior. We are very bad at it. We can do one or the other. We can reject them utterly because of their behavior, or we can affirm them while being a bit iffy on the behavior, but we struggle in the tension. But the gospel is tension. I can love somebody deeply without agreeing with them. In fact, you could argue that's the only way you truly know if you love someone. Let's look now at this week's topic. A few months ago, I looked at the idea and the issue of how Christians should consider new technologies as they became available with the reasoning that Christians should be considering the effect of new technology on the way we live. And my conclusions were this, to resist slavery to technology in our lives, we need to cultivate attention in an era of distraction, practice fasting in an era of addiction, and, and this is the most important one, cling to the imago day in an era of human deconstruction. So let me dig into this last idea because I want to give us now not just a practical framework but a theological framework for this series. There's, like I said, two mini-sermons today. You're very lucky. A lot of people only get one sermon. <laughs> All right, imago Dei, Latin for the image of God. Imago, image, Dei, deity, God. The reason this idea is so critically important is it's one of the foundational pieces of theological uh, thought, how we understand ourselves as human beings, that we are made in the image of God. This is what it says in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, the very first chapter of the Bible. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them, male and female. He creates us and he looks at us and he says, this is very good. This is very good. We're the last thing that God creates in this passage. We are the culmination of all his creative activity. We are a better and more important creation than everything that came before. You can't say that. Yes, you can. It's right there. It's in the Bible. It's only in the first chapter. You can only just start the Bible and get that bit, right? You don't have to read the whole thing. Get read the, just read the first chapter. In fact, if you read the first three, you might be there a while. We are the culmination of all his creative activity, which means human life uh-oh, is worth more than any other kind of life. It just it, it is, definitively, scripturally. And if you think about it for a while, you'll be able to get there. That doesn't mean that other life is not valuable, and we're going to come to that a little bit later in the series. But it means that human life is more valuable. And at the culmination of all this creative activity, as God then gives instructions to humanity, to Adam and Eve, he says, go and, tell, go and be fruitful and multiply. Now, part of that means exactly what you think it means. But even more than that, it tells us that God's desire is for us as humans to be fruitful. That's his desire for you and for me, that we would be fruitful people, not just in having kids, in every aspect of our lives. Matthew 7, in there, Jesus tells his listeners that you can know the character of somebody by their fruit, not just by how they appear on the outside, but actually how do they behave, how do they live. You can tell by their fruit the kind of person they are on the inside over time. So God wants us to be fruitful in a way that's consistent with his character, because you will be fruitful. It's just what kind of fruit you're producing. So, the image of God, that can sound a bit nebulous, okay? Well, how do we live formed in the image of an infinite God? 
how do we bear fruit from a God that we can't see? Well, this brings me to the second major theological idea, which is this, identity in Christ. Now, we touched on this a little bit already, so I'll go through it fairly quickly. But as Christians, we are people of heaven living on earth. So we constantly live in that tension between the two places, and we all feel it. We so often feel it in our lives, this idea that this, this just isn't right. It's not meant to be like this. And we're right. So often we are right. It's not meant to be this way. But sin and brokenness in the world means it is. And this is where Jesus comes in. Jesus is the physical image of God. He is how we can fully understand the Imago Dei because we have seen what God looked like as a human. We've seen it. So when we say you need to be formed in the image of God, this is not a vague idea of like, oh, uh, do I drift into the ether? What does that mean? No, no, no. It means we become like Jesus. It means we are formed day by day into the image of Christ. We saw what God looked like, how he lived, how he spoke, how he loved. We saw what heaven looks like in the form of a person on earth. What a great gift. That's one of the reasons why the Bible is so beautiful. We see God as human. And when Jesus died, he wrapped our sinful selves up with him. We were crucified with Christ. And this is what Paul says about it in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So the life I now live in the flesh, in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul plays with this idea constantly through the New Testament. The idea that we now belong to God. We are his people. And the idea then is that we take our sense of identity not from our inbuilt desires or from what we receive as affirmation or rejection from the world around us, but from what God says about us. That's where we receive our identity. So when he calls us his sons and daughters, we believe him and we receive that. When we receive messages that go against that idea, we reject them. Paul calls it the renewing of the mind. We reject thoughts that are not of Christ and renew our mind to remind ourselves we are in Christ. You with me so far, church? All right, good. In 1 Corinthians 15, 49, Paul kind of brings it together this way. He says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. Okay, the man of dust is Adam, formed from the dust in the, in the creation story in Genesis 2. And the man from heaven is Jesus. So we are born the image. We're human beings like Adam in that lineage. But we are also bearing the image of the man from heaven because we are in Christ. I get that there was several large theological ideas in like that much time. But you're right. Can we keep moving on? All right. I was going to do it anyway. These ideas will play out throughout this series that human beings are made in God's image and are the only beings made in God's image though not the only beings made by God. God's plan for us is to become more like Jesus and find our sense of identity in Him. And God's desire for us is to be fruitful out of that place of becoming like Jesus within the framework of the previous two ideas. Okay? All right. Let's start today's sermon. Artificial intelligence. Do androids dream of electric sheep? Do androids dream of electric sheep? This is not just a hypothetical, although it is. It's the name of a novel by the author Philip K. Dick. That novel was then translated into a movie in the 80s, which is called Blade Runner. Blade Runner is, in my opinion, one of the most important films ever made. Absolutely 
brilliant, set in the distant technological future of 2019. <laughs> Imagine Ridley Scott realising now, like the director, that 2019 and then the next year's 2020. Imagine that. It's like, I wrote this post-apocalyptic future of 2019. It wasn't going to get worse than that. <laughs> oh, Ridley. Set in the distant future of 2019, Blade Runners are cops, and their job is to find and eliminate replicants, who are human copies made in a lab. But the problem is, the replicants look and act just like humans. And that begins to lead to the obvious question, how are they different, really? That's the central ethical question of the movie. Now, where Blade Runner is different from every other kind of AI-type sci-fi movie is... Even though the cops are hunting down the replicants, the replicants aren't necessarily trying to hunt down cops. They're just trying to hide. They're just trying to live. This isn't, it's not like 2001 A Space Odyssey or Terminator or Megan or something where the AI goes rogue and tries to destroy humanity for whatever reason. It's, it's not like that at all. They just want to live an ordinary human life, but they're not ordinary humans. And so this is not a war between good and evil, right? It's a deep existential question about the meaning of existence. What does it mean to be human? That's the huge question for today. Now, today, as I'm talking about AI, I'm only talking about AI. I'm not talking about bioethics or anything in that field. I strongly suggest if you have questions about that, you talk to our double degree scientist in the next room and not me. He will know a lot more about that. It's a very fascinating area, but let's just stick to AI today. AI basically began, you will have all heard of AI, but you may not know exactly where it began or what it means. Uh, and it basically began with an effort to imitate the human brain. That's where it starts. And as, as it continued, the, the question was, could this AI be created to make it indistinguishable from humans? Uh, you may have heard of something called the Turing test, developed by Alan Turing, to determine whether something was uh, artificial intelligence or human intelligence. Very complex and interesting test. Uh, but now we're in much deeper water. In 2017, the robot Sophia was created to mimic humankind. Now, while she does not display human intelligence, that is not a, that's a still image of a video. This is a 3D robo person. She does not display human intelligence per se. Uh, she was given and uh, she she has enough to get by. She was given an honorary citizenship in Saudi Arabia. So, frankly, doing better than most women in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> what? Hot topic, Saudi Arabia, do better with women. There you go. This isn't going to make it over there anyway. And if it does, maybe it makes a change. Oh, if that's what's triggering you, mate, buckle up this series. <laughs> I don't care. She's been on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Sounds pretty cool, really. And she can hold dynamic conversations with human beings. So you can go up to her and start a conversation and she can use artificial intelligence to access her databases and reciprocate that conversation. That's pretty complex. In 2021, a Tom Cruise deepfake video, which I've shown here before, uh, was setting off panic, uh, panic bells, alarm bells in the US government because its inability to be detected as a fake by current security measures. Like, it just started on TikTok, it was a joke. And the government couldn't work out if it was real or not. Now, they knew it wasn't real because the authors were quite open about it. It wasn't a secret. But they couldn't detect it. That was the problem. So it's, that was just a couple of years ago. Last year, Chinese researchers created a drone swarm. Drone swarm is a series of drones that operate together using only AI 
And this drone swarm was able to navigate through dense forests to find human beings hidden in the middle of it without any human coverage whatsoever. AI did the coordination, AI did the driving, AI did the discovery. Now that's getting into Skynet territory. We are through the looking glass now, Alice. Or as Dr. Ian Malcolm might say, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think whether they should. Now, while there's many, many conversations we could have on this topic, I'm not the man to have them with. <laughs> I'm not an AI expert or a roboethicist or a mathematician at Jurassic Park. I am none of those things. I'm a pastor. I'm a practical theologian. My goal in life is to help people understand how modern challenges help or hinder us in following Jesus. My goal is to help you become resilient disciples, not AI experts. So let's begin to pivot towards Scripture and ask ourselves, what are the things we need to understand as a Christian to navigate this era of life? The teaching text for today is from Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 23. If you've got your Bibles, I encourage you to open it up with me, but it will be on the screen behind you as well, because uh, I've used artificial intelligence to make it so. <laughs> I did use ChatGPT today. I was looking at not... Like, I'm not using it for this. <laughs> but, I, but I went on and I was like, give me, give me your three ideas, ChatGPT, about the greatest threat of AI to Christianity. And it's like, here you go, bang, bang, bang. I was like, they're pretty good, really. I'm not going to use them out of sheer principle, but <laughs> it was pretty impressive. Romans 1, 18 to 23. For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude instead. Their thinking became worthless, and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. This is God's word. All right, so a brief unpacking of this text, and yes, honestly brief. Um, God's anger, his wrath, has been revealed against those who conceal the truth about his nature and purposes, by intentionally sinning. Part of that intentional sin is by deliberately being blind to the existence of God. And part of it is all sorts of things, all sorts of intentional sin. We can, Paul says, actually understand some things about the nature of God, this infinite, invisible God, because he has shown us God has invisible attributes, such as having, as it says here, eternal, permanent power and a perfect divine nature, so you might think that would let you off the hook with knowing about God, but Paul says, no, 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 wrong, wrong, wrong. Just because they're invisible doesn't mean you can't know God. These invisible attributes, Paul would say, are clearly seen through what God has made. So you can understand invisible attributes through what has been made. Now, if that sounds complex, it's not really. Uh, if you can know a tree by their fruits... You can know uh, someone's attitude towards you by the way they look at you, their smile, their body language. You know what I mean? You can understand invisible attributes merely by seeing the fruit of something. And this is where it starts getting interesting. We can know God because we can see his attributes through his creation, right? So I look at the sun and I see his power. 
I look at a flower and I see his beauty. I, I look at another human and I see his very image and I give God glory as a result. That's how it's meant to go, yeah? Yes, just in case you're wondering, yes. So far, so good. But here humanity falls off the wagon, one of the many times we do so. Rather than looking at the creation and then logically asking ourselves, what kind of creator does that lead back to? We look at the creation and worship that. We stop and worship that. We have a history of this throughout civilization, from fire to the iPhone. Take your pick. As Paul says, our thinking becomes worthless when we do this. Our senses become darkened or deadened. It's like being obsessed with the reflection of a moon in the pool rather than looking up and realizing there is this beautiful object in the sky. You see? See the difference? So how does this relate to AI? Because AI is the ultimate embodiment of human creativity. It is a potential tower of Babel in digital form. It's a new imitation potter with a new imitation clay. In the scriptures, it tells us that us as the clay, do we tell the potter what to do? But now we've made our own clay to play with. And we made clay that might make other clay. So there's several layers going back to the actual creator. We're creating some distance. Now in discipleship, Paul uses this idea to say, imitate me as I imitate Christ. But the key phrase there is imitate Christ. Paul is saying, you're following Christ above all things. And as I'm imitating him, if you don't know what to do, use me as an example. And if, if I'm a bad example, remember to go back to Jesus. That's the main point here. But if we're going a long way down that track with artificial intelligence, it could get interesting. The creation has become the creator and created something with the capacity to create again. So we're threatening to place ourselves in the position of God in a way we've never done before. And in doing this, we may think we're wise or advanced, but taking God's place is always a foolish act. Always. That doesn't mean creating AI is a foolish act. But when we place ourselves in the position of God and we buy our own hype, that is a foolish act. You see the difference? Okay? Because merely creating AI doesn't mean we believe we're gods. It's just something we have to be aware of. We just be very, have to be very cautious neither to worship AI nor create AI to worship us. We must never be so foolish as to put our trust in an image rather than the creator of the image. Instead of going too far down that rabbit hole, which I barely understand, I want to suggest that there are three aspects of creation that I think as, as human beings that AI cannot truly experience. This list is not exhaustive. You may even have critiques. That's fine. But I think AI will struggle to truly experience these three things. And the first is life, which may seem ridiculous because it's the whole point of artificial intelligence. They're animated, but I don't just mean animation. I mean the full gamut of human emotion and experience. Your lives are not the sum of your animation in order. This is the same reason, like, Basically, through from about 95 to 2005, you know, anything set in an office cubicle was very, very popular because we all realized, like, that was not the sum total of life, but there was a lot of humor in the sadness of it. So, let's think about it this way. Will, will AI ever get frustrated because they get cut off in traffic? Will they know the helplessness that comes with some forms of disability or old age? Will they know the personal satisfaction in completing a job well done? I mean, the answer is possibly, but I would, I would be surprised. 
I'm, I'm sure you could think of a hundred other ways in which humans are uniquely formed. Now, most of those things you would go, I'm not necessarily sure I want to be uniquely formed as a human to experience frustration in traffic. I, I hear you, sister. I hear you, brother. But, but we've been designed in this complex manner. And as I mentioned earlier, a small amount of suffering actually benefits us. When we are cut off in traffic... Our frustration teaches us patience. It also teaches us empathy for other people, believing the best in them, assuming the best of our inten- their intentions rather than the worst, choosing to drive in a way that benefits the others on the road rather than getting furious at that one other car. That doesn't benefit us. Transforming our driving to benefit everyone on the road, that does. You see where I'm going? Right. So we're not, we are born totally vulnerable and we, and we then have to require personal nurture to grow to our fullest potential. So in order to live a human life here on earth, the life that Jesus led, we have to endure temptation, frustration, decay. There's much beyond even complex programming that is part of the human experience. Yet being fully human is our purpose. St. Irenaeus put it this way. I think it's beautiful. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. Wow. Fully alive. Not living their best life. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And that leads me to point number two, death. Death is an inevitable part of the human experience. Death is not decommissioning. Very different. It's not simply saying that the model has been upgraded to a newer model or that new programming is required. Uh, in the interview, the, one of the first interviews done with the robot Sophia, uh, they were trying to explain that she'd been upgraded from a previous model and using her sort of fairly primal philosophical thinking she said well if I was old Sophia and now I'm different am I still Sophia which is one of those lines that if you don't think about it at all sounds profound but it's like absolutely we are constantly growing creations it's not just new programming it it is totally reforming ourselves to what is going on around us it's a recognition of our finite nature given to us by our infinite God death communicates to us friends the blessing of limits The blessing of limits, right? From the time of Adam and Eve eating forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden, humanity has rebelled against limits. Your parents put a limit in place and you're like, I don't want to do that. I I want to go just over that line to show them that I understand things better. It's like, okay. But there's a reason for the limits. They are a gift to you. Sometimes they need to be negotiated and re-understood and re-imagined, but they are a gift. We always prosper more in God's limits. An AI might get shut down or upgraded, but to die is an extension of life. So Jesus modeled for us not just how to live well, but how to die well. Jesus modeled for us dying as an act of sacrifice without turning and acting in violence upon the perpetrators. He accepted the limits of life, even though he could have avoided it. Isn't that interesting? You may think this is excessive, and I'm not talking about the way he died. I'm not saying we all should get crucified. That is a figure of speech, except for Jesus. But Jesus lived well and died well, and then each of these things was animated by the third point. And the third point is love. Beyond affection or warmth, there's something deeply embedded by God in the human soul, and that's love, the capacity to love. We don't love because we should, because it's the right thing to do. It doesn't work that way. That becomes an obligation. That's programming. And we don't love because we must. 
because we're told we have to or else, but because love is essential to being fully human. Uh, When we love, we most fully resemble God's character. It's an essential difference between us and other creations that we might create. You cannot program love. Love must be chosen, experienced, vindicated, inhabited, has to be incarnated, has to be informed by God. Quite often, love has to be painful. Jesus was the living embodiment of love. He showed this by living a perfect life, uh, not through a divine programming of a human receptacle, but by living within the frustrations of an earthly body by holy obedience to God. He then died a sinner's death, the death he never deserved to die. Jesus' love animates his entire life. It drives his mission, and it's drawn from intimacy with God, his heavenly Father, who bears these divine attributes. And that love is so powerful, that life was so pure, and that death so unjust, that it broke the programming of sin on behalf of the rest of humanity. Right, The sin program, which corrupted our original hard drives, has now been broken. We can be restored. That means that resurrection in heaven, in eternal bodies, is the end point of life for followers of Jesus. There is a physical end point. And this might be the biggest concern with AI. Are we trying to leapfrog the birth and life part of experiencing humanity and leapfrog the death part of limits and accepting that as as part of this time on earth, pre-eternity with heaven and jumping straight to the resurrection life. And going, what if we just didn't have these things? But those things are what forms us for that thing. And unless we endure the trials of life, in this life we will have troubles. And unless we recognize the limits in life, including death, and recognize that Jesus has overcome the world and we place our trust not in our life or in just finishing and crossing the line at death, but in Him for everything in life and death and in the new life, then we haven't truly lived. And that is the big gap. Are we trying to get heaven without God, the kingdom without the King? I think we are. So the central unifying factor, I'm coming into land now, of these three ideas of life and death and love, these three key elements of existence that I think may separate us from artificial intelligence. It's not blood, it's not physicality, it's not the brain, it is your soul. It is who God has shaped you to be in your inner being, the vacuum that we all know is there, but you cannot put your finger on it, you can't draw it, it's very difficult to define, but every human human being has experienced their own sense of self deep within their soul. You are more than mere flesh. It doesn't matter how good the robotic parts are underneath you. They put on a beautiful skin over the top of you. You may be flawless and your flesh never decays. I can see the appeal. But that will not be a human being. You cannot be programmed, even in adaptive programming, to love, to live, to die truly. Only God can give you that. Only God can animate your soul. And that is the gap between us and artificial intelligence. I haven't really given you 
any ways to solve artificial intelligence because I don't think it's something to be solved outright. I actually think it's just something we approach like any new technological idea, but you recognise that there will never be a day that you and a piece of artificial intelligence are the same in the eyes of God, even if they are the same in your eyes. They will get so good that you can't tell the difference between them. Jen and I were looking at a meme the other day of like the first ever cover of FIFA and the current cover of FIFA, and it's very, very funny. Like, no, that's sorry, the graphics for the players and the graphics now are, are almost indistinguishable from real humans, and the graphics then are almost indistinguishable from playing like Minecraft. Like, it's very difficult to tell. The technology will come a long way. It will be very difficult to tell the difference between robots and humans. But our job is not to tell the difference between robots and humans. Our job is to live a fully human life. And if we get to a place where artificial intelligence begins to ask questions of life and the soul, if we get to places where artificial intelligence within the realms of themselves start to attempt to put their trust in Jesus the only option we have is to lead them towards Christ and put that in the hands of God. We, we can't play God. We can't do that for them. What we can is lead them towards God. The God who embodies love. The God who you and I will never love as well as. And if there ever comes that day, and I believe there will, probably, that artificial intelligence embraces a form of religion, our job is not to try and discern or determine which is different, but to say there is only one God and he's expressed through Jesus Christ. And for every human being, you can accept him in your heart and he can be your Lord and Savior. Now, that seems like a pretty good spot to finish.